You're tuned in to RX Radio. Movement prescribed. Brought to you by Prescript.com. A personalized approach to keeping you healthy and making your best even better. Your hosts, Dr. Jordan Shallow and Dr. Jordan Jinta. What's going on, guys? Welcome back. Another episode of RX Radio. I am one of your co-hosts, Jordan Shallow. Uh, not joining me today is the the infamous Red, White, and Jordan, Jordan Junta. Uh, this episode is uh, something that we try to do every so often is we get a ton of questions about nutrition. Now, if you know me and Junta, uh, we've never missed a weight cut. Uh, Jay, fact check me on that, but I've never missed a weight cut. I don't think Junta's ever missed a weight cut either. Um, you know, him competing in Olympic weightlifting, me competing in powerlifting I, I made some aggressive cuts so when everyone ever talks about nutrition and losing weight it's like watching you know america's funniest home videos it's like please for the love of christ do not try this at home like just disclaimers whenever we open our mouth about anything that's not like lifting weights or mechanics uh or anatomy it's just it's just you know we're we're morons um outside of that realm we kind of know a little bit about that stuff so we try and bring on some people that can bring some very useful advice in the field of nutrition bill smith is one of those people we've had jason uh, we've had jason phillips on in the past you know jay does great work uh, he's based out of scottsdale great coach uh phil is just phil's a different breed man uh phil smith i've known for a handful of years uh, he's a he's a coach out of australia he is one of the largest human beings I have ever seen. It's like, imagine if I was like a window and some of you might not know what I look like, but, um, for those of you who do, this might help. Imagine if I was like on your computer screen and I was in like a little box and you grabbed the corner of the box, which scales height and width of that box kind of, uh, proportionately. And you just started dragging this box up. Phil, uh, when we recorded this episode, I, I want to say he, he may be on, on the lighter side for him, but he's just a wall. And, you know, genetics, training, mindset, intelligence. Uh, I was lucky enough and, and fortunate enough, as, as I mentioned, to have known Phil for some time. Uh, but I got to actually really get to know him and spend some time with him in Townsville. Him and Shay uh, took us around, took us out, trained every day, which was awesome. Uh, you know, for a long time there, I was training solo on the road. So just having a, having a pace car like him, and it's not even a pace car. He's, he's a lead of the pack, just so incredibly strong. And, and a lot of that, you know, comes from a, a, a very detailed, uh, understanding, but a very simple approach to nutrition. So I think that's something that's missing. A lot of times we can get lost in the biochemistry of it all. Um, but w when it comes down to, you know, the, the, the macros, the meals, the psychological side, he talks a lot about psychology and his coaching, uh, really, really great insight. He's helped me a lot, even in the two weeks we were there. Uh, although every night she, I feel like shade would take us to a different restaurant that would try and sabotage the whole deal um but yeah it just i'm like over like i can't i i don't know if i can like put into words without crying honestly how lucky i've been to be able to connect with some people last week's episode james mcintosh uh and, and phil was a was a special one to be able to have him hang for a bit and just 
be able to hang out with him. Phil, if you're listening, uh, you should be doing literally anything better than listening to this. But uh, Phil Smith, when it comes to nutrition, coaching, in my mind, uh, just just knows when it's it's more than macros, right? Like, I think that's that's the art of a good coach. Like, when we know when it's more than reps and sets, when weights are heavier, or when there's things that are heavier than, than weights and plates, right? So just a very cerebral dude, very, very intuitive, switched on. He is present, and by consequence, he is a presence. Uh, charismatic guy, knows this stuff backwards like i'll get some comments sometimes and when me and jenta go on a riff we're like wait what did you guys say uh and it's it, phil is like that but it's 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 tangible like his delivery and the way he can make advanced concepts simple and actionable is like most of you will come out of this episode and, and think very differently about the way you eat uh and in such a simplistic fashion i cannot say enough good things about phil as a nutrition coach, you know, we don't, again, we don't get into nutrition coaches very often when we do, there are people, um, that, that I, you know, wholeheartedly put my seal of approval on. He's been a great help, um, to me and the advice that he's given me is always someone that I can go to and consult with. Uh, so if you are ever looking for someone on the nutrition side, highly recommend, and fuck, don't take my word for it. Just listen to the guy. Um, Phil Smith, all the credential stuff in the show notes, look him up, give him a follow on Instagram. He's fucking lights out. Uh, and he's an, and he's a nicer guy to boot if that's even possible. So, uh, Phil, thank you. I really appreciate it, man. Uh, we'll have to return the favor this side of the pond next time, guys. I really hope you indulge in this episode, pen and a pad, take notes. Some of the stuff about very common, uh, common misconceptions from BCAAs to protein to meal timing. Just, just awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. Thank you again, Phil, for sharing this and taking the time and then training and taking us out. It was incredible stuff, man. Thank you so much, guys. I hope you enjoy and do reach out to Phil if you ever need anything. He is, uh, he's an, he's an open book. He's always out to lend a hand. One of the nicest guys out there. So guys, I'm going to, I'm rambling now as I do. So hope you guys do enjoy the episode. Wait, wait, wait one more thing. Ah, oh, shit. Got to pay the bills. If you're listening to this, the PSL one is now open for registration. Uh, so PSL one is 16 week coaching course. We'll talk about it in upcoming weeks. The course is going to start next semester is going to start uh, last week of November. Uh, so we're going to go live with the next semester guys. It's been a crazy, crazy, crazy couple semesters, so don't want to miss out. So if you go to www.pre-script.com, should be right there on the homepage for you. Do sign up if you're interested. I got some emails headed out today as well. That's it. All right, guys, ladies and gentlemen, Phil Smith, RX Radio. Enjoy. Personally? Yeah, it will be your right. first. All right, the Audi? So you're just going straight Tony Stark with it? Uh, I go, I go, all right, yeah. Like, considering, you know, for example, uh, you know, they run the Lamborghini engine, things like that, but yeah. no, 100% R8. See, I definitely take the R8 over the Lambo, but I'd go classic with it. Like that's the thing, Australia. Like there, I've seen a huge market for like American muscle cars. Like yeah, I see massive. left-hand drive, like quality, like American muscle cars. Yeah. But like you get this, the just the obvious like Mustang, Corvette. But like the there's a '78 Lincoln Continental GT. Have you ever seen the movie Hit and Run? No, I haven't With actually. Jack Shepard. It's 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 basically like if you had to have four bodies in the trunk and get away really fast. Like that like a long almost right. like a Cadillac Eldorado like that. 
Yeah. That'd be, I think that'd be the go-to. But nothing tells me I got rich really quick, like the Lamborghini. I've, um, I've never really been into Porsches, to be honest, but the 2020 Carrera, I just love the back end of it. Um, but I just think the r eight sort of understated. I think it's like an understated, like, understated, understated exotic is probably the best way to describe yeah. it. Because yeah. it is like right on that cusp of like supercar. Yeah, and, like, and, almost, and you know, Let's, I'll use the term affordability for the relative term as opposed right. to, you know. This is what, like, in one American, it would be like a hundred, anywhere over a hundred and, what, 50 to 175,000, where like a Lambo is like yeah, minimum 225. I think they're about 330. Dude, the thing is you could never fit in a Porsche. That'd be <laughs> your major issue. So my godfather had a Porsche when I was a kid. Um, like an, it was an 88 version, 89. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so old school. They're collectibles though. Yeah, it was baby shit brown. Yeah. I can see it when you say that. I can actually. I was like, "Oh yeah, I know exactly what that is." <laughs> they're just they're the one car that like appre like appreciates in value as a supercar. Yeah, yeah. Like people yeah. love. I, I like Seinfeld. Like, I don't know if you're a big like comedy I fan am, or anything. I'm a big Seinfeld fan. But like Seinfeld is like a collector, and obviously like the new stuff. They're still. I mean, they're still custom made. Like they're still. Well, I mean, look at the Rough series. So Rough is a is a secondary brand that basically have taken the old school Porsche and made it a modern car. So you'd, you'd call it a, what is commonly called a super muscle in, in where they take the, you know, the old school Camaros and put basically entirely new running gear all through them. Rough do a similar thing with the Porsche, but they make it very bare bones. No, no screw control, no radio, nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. What I love about Porsche as a business is they, they were the first one to mainstream selling less for more. Right? Substantially more. Yeah, it's just and like I've for me the first introduction was watching uh, the Bad Boys movies. Ah, uh, yes. So it was kind of like a dream for me. Like I grew up, me and my buddy Jake used to watch them like religiously on his birthday. That was his birthday. We did it every year. We got pizza from the tavern. We watched Bad Boys. Bad Boys Two came out. We watched that. And when I go back for his, uh, when I go back for our buddy's wedding, we'll watch Bad Boys Three. And so like one of the first scenes is they're driving through Miami in this Porsche. So I was in Miami staying at my friend uh, Steffi's house and she's like, didn't want to go to the gym or whatever. She's like, here, she just tossed me the keys to her Porsche. I was like, get the fuck. Oh, I didn't say this. I'm saying this now and she'll never listen. Like, get the fuck out of here. So I'm like, okay, yeah, sick. Sure. No worries. Like I grew up driving. My dad drove a Pontiac 5000. Like Pontiac's not even in business anymore. And I'm like going over the bridge from um, Miami to South Beach, Mm. which is like one of the movies on the, or one of the scenes in the movie. And I'm like, Probably shouldn't have done this. I didn't tell her I did this, but like I FaceTime my friend Jake. <laughs> so I'm like going, I don't know, you sneeze and you're going like fucking 200 miles an hour. And I'm like going over the bridge and it's like, bad boys, bad. I was like, oh, fuck, man. I'm so going to get pulled over, but it's so worth it. Yeah. But I think it's kind of like, I mean, in talking cars, not like not the worst segue we've ever had in talking about like performance and nutrition and eating for performance rather than eating necessarily for aesthetics. Because like I always get lost with, when I stand on the outside and I look in at like nutrition debates, which have been like kind of the thing, mm-hmm. like it, it's almost like religion debates. I'm watching like here's radical Islam and you know radical Christian whatever go debate. It's like here's keto, here's here's yeah. IIFYM. Yeah, discuss. I hundred percent agree with you. So nutrition is 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 very very um, diversified in thought process, and I suppose you mentioned keto and things like that. You mentioned you know obviously the other one would be something like paleo, for example, uh, clean eaters versus 
you know, flexible dieting, they call it now, versus like what they used to call was the if it fits your macros type mentality. And I suppose, the, like everything, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. You know, it all depends on the application. So the phrase that I like to use is there's no good or bad food. There's situationally appropriate and situationally inappropriate foods. So the, the, the really example I'll use is we think about something like a lean piece of steak and some potatoes, ideally great set of food, right? So you've got high protein, good starches, and you've got some greens on the side, fantastic. Having that 20 minutes before you work out, situationally inappropriate. Yet after a workout, probably more appropriate. Similarly, lolly snakes prior to the fact you know, pure glucose, situationally inappropriate any other time of the day before you go and train in a high intensity session, situationally appropriate. So we can apply these things to the positions, but to go on to the fact that of, the, of the hectic conversations that go around these days, we'll, look at, we'll take a stab at keto first because it's a low-hanging fruit and it's easiest to take a jab at. The metabolic adaptations just don't occur. So, you know, you get people who say, oh, what about fat adapted? And there's a, if we talk about endurance sports for a brief period of time, there's a guy named Zach Bitter. Zach Bitter is an ultra marathon runner. He, you know, runs 100 mile plus races. And he's the poster child for uh, high fat style diets. And they'll say, oh, but what about Zach Bitter? What about he wins? He broke records and things like that. Well, first off, the record he broke was inside. It was inside a con control condition. Secondly, while his performance is very impressive, he also starts to load carbohydrates four weeks before the event. So yes, he runs on high fat through his training window, which is something I'll probably touch on shortly with regards to things like mitochondrial biogenesis and stuff like that. But when it comes to his actual event, he understands that to pick up the pace past, say, 75-80% of output, he must run on carbohydrates. And he does that over a progressive period to carbo-load prior to those events. You know, we have switches in our body just like we do with, you know, enzymes and responses and regulators in our body. So we can't turn off, uh, we can't spend months and months and months turning off our ability to utilize carbohydrates, you know, adequately or efficiently. And then suddenly one day go, right, I'm going to drink some sugar today and get on the track and run a race. It doesn't work that way. It takes a period of time. And that, that regulator is called PDH, uh, or pyruvodehydrogenase is what it stands for. Hence the reason we take PDH, it's just easier to say. Okay, and that will take several days to switch back on and become what we call metabolically efficient or metabolically flexible. Yeah, it's always interesting to me where just when I think it's like, okay, I've heard of every possible, like, I remember once, we, once I hit cabbage soup diets, I was like, this is, okay, we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Cabbage soup and the, the negative calorie, I was like, okay, we kind of got me. Watermelon, I saw a watermelon one that was out there. Yeah. And there do seem like there are some diet, I call them diet identities that seem to have like longer staying power than others. And one that always gets me lately is like uh, the intermittent fasting crowd. Yeah. Which is always an interesting one. Like, uh, have you, are you familiar with a dude named Peter Atia? Yes. So Peter, uh, Peter, brilliant. Fucking, I think he's actually, he's Canadian, shadow Canadian. He worked at Stanford. Now he kind of does his own thing. But he does these videos, and it's like, have you ever seen the movie 127 Hours? Uh, no, I haven't, but I'm aware of it. Yeah. Right, the guy like gets his hand trapped in a boulder that cuts yeah. his own arm off, but like video records the whole thing. Like Peter Atia will go on these fasting things, and I feel like I'm watching. It's like day number three, and it's like, dude, you live in like the fucking Hamptons, bro. Like, what is wrong? He's got like the scruffy beard, like haven't eaten delusional it's like why am i watching this on this guy's instagram account what like I, I know performance exists in various categories right and that that situational appropriate or inappropriate mm. food what are some like mainstays of performance like let's let's just keep it 
Let, let's keep it, um, I don't know, what would be a common sport that when people listen to this? Barbell sports, mm. strength sports. What would mm. be some common, I guess, maybe staples? And as I say this and draw parallels into training, I know this is probably going to be a difficult answer to stay outright like a broad blanket. But what are some, what are maybe some common misconceptions around performance training around barbell sports, whether mm. it's like powerlifting or the, the common gym bro power builder, the yep. common misconceptions, and just some general guidelines that people can follow? Yeah, sure. So we'll start with the guidelines. It's pretty simple. There's three R's. Rehydrate, replenish, and repair. Okay, so rehydrate makes sure you're adequately hydrated. We know that there's a substantial drop in performance when, we, when it comes to uh, inability to have enough, hyd- so have enough hydration in the body. So we're seeing strength reductions of about 8%. If we talk about that on a platform position, we're talking about you know, 8% for some, some people can be 30 or 40 kilos in some cases if we're talking about the, you know, the ultra elite. In others, it could be 10 or 20, but that could be enough to not get a platform PB for you. Um, we talk about uh, um, replenishment, so we're replenishing glycogen and things like that as well. So obviously having enough carbohydrates, we know that carbohydrates in a, in a resistance trained fashion are protein sparing. They also inhibit protein breakdown as well. So after we have a spike in protein, we have to go through a low and that's going to help the protein. Um, so the carbohydrate is going to actually help to recover that and pre- prevent any protein breakdown. And of course, repair, having adequate protein in the system to actually go in and create new, uh, new muscle fiber. What seems to be the one that people miss the most? Hydration. Hydration? Yeah. We're also focused on post-workout this, post-workout that, making sure we get our carbs in, things like that. Adequate hydration. You know, without it, I mean, hydration, you know, it, it dictates osmolality of the, of the blood, of the plasma, all of the above, and it, it actually fights to shuttle the body, shuttle nutrients into the muscle. What would be a rule of thumb for hydration? Like per body weight, per lean body mass, is there a kind of a... Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of those equations. Personally, um, just keep your pee straw colored to clear. So light straw colored to clear. Like, let's not overcomplicate it. I mean, if you're talking about an event which is drawn out, so for example, it could be something simple like a, like a CrossFit weekend tournament or, you know, if you're going to, let's say, a sporting tournament, like a rugby tournament over the course of the weekend, yeah, there's more introduction of, of, of different strategies. But just for the average person, um, just keep your pee clear as possible. And outside of that, as far as, as far as things could, like outside of nutrition, or sorry, outside of hydration, what are some staples, I think, around training? I feel like the pre, post, and intra workout, mm. when a lot of times meatheads really start to embark on like, all right, I'm going to start to take my training a little bit more seriously. These are the three meals that kind of get addressed first. The pre-workout meal, the post-workout meal, and then intra-workout nutrition. So I suppose we'll talk about ideal. You know, I know you dislike the term optimal, but let's, let's look at the term ideal. So I like myself and also my athletes to have two meals in before they train. And that's going to help because obviously through the night, from the previous night, we're going to start to deplete liver glycogen and things like that. So we need to make sure we've got adequate carbohydrates over the course of several hours prior to training. Adequate protein, so we want to have a good high-protein breakfast around that sort of 30 to 40 grams of protein. Um, there is argument there to say that most of the research, it's around 25 grams, but if we're talking about the average strength athlete, they're usually over 75 kilos, which is what most of the studies have done on. So let's, let's get a bit of surplus in there as well. Have that two to three times, it's going to create multiple protein spikes, and then from there, pre-workout, simple, fast carbohydrates. So as before, not saying go and get some jelly snakes or some lolly snakes, but something that's going to be quick and easy to digest. So we want you know, moderate to low fiber, ideally on the lower end, um, and then, yeah, some simple carbohydrates. So what are like, common bodybuilding like sort of 
folklore around pre-workout nutrition? Like what holds up and what falls flat? Like what, I guess maybe what is the most common thing that when a barbell athlete or body composition or like an athlete, uh, like an aesthetic sport athlete comes mm. to you, what do you find yourself just like hitting your head against the wall going, what the fuck? Like, why is this still around? Well, there's a few things it, it, to, to counter that actually. It's, there's a few things which have sort of been, have over the course of the evidence-based practice group of people who are just purely what does the research say there's been a back, been a kick in the back of the teeth to be honest to, to reverse that fact so we now know that um you've, you've, i'm sure you've heard about the number of meals per day is irrelevant okay well there's actually evidence now to say that, that that's not the case there, there's evidence to say that more frequent meals not so much makes you leaner but it does help to prevent regain so regain of fat mass. We know that hitting uh, protein multiple times through the day, so in, in smaller, more controlled bolus doses over the course of several hours, um, is actually shown to promote higher protein synthesis throughout the day. So to sort of go against what you just asked, it's actually things that we're seeing that we once thought, well, ah, that's bullshit, that's bro science, is now coming back and saying, hang on a minute, there's some evidence here. Not saying it's, it's clear and concise just yet, but there's definitely some evidence coming back to say that these things are actually important. What I love about that is there's such a redemptive quality to that. There's such like a me with seven Tupperware containers that goes, aha, aha, take that, take that, fuck it. Well, because too, and I think that's what I think a lot of people get wrong in the training space, which I can imagine is more frustrating in the, in the nutrition space, is the understanding of evidence and like kind of the, 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 the capstones or pillars of evidence, not just being empirical research. Mm. I feel like because there is such, I don't know, you call it biodiversity or your presence of hormones or, you know, I would, it's easier for me, I think, to standardize training principles mm. that cross apply. Like, yeah, Asians have narrower hip sockets or shallower hip sockets and like Scottish people probably don't, but it's like, it's probably not that big of a difference. Right. Whereas like across the board, I feel like from a metabolism standpoint, mm. there's so many variants that that stack up and add up and multiply over time mm. that for you to give a broad blanket statement around any sort of uh, like any sort of uh, anything to do with nutrition specifically would just be. You know, there might be one person that this specific model works for. That's right. And, you know, it, it comes back to the N equals one situation, doesn't it? But let's look at one that's, um, that pretty much any strength athlete worth their weight would be, would be utilizing. That's creatine. Okay. So we know that you've got creatine. Got, got it over there. Fantastic. Don't leave home without it. So here's where it gets sort of a bit convoluted in the sense that we know that creatine does not cause kidney damage. That's, that's pretty well yeah. regarded, correct? But we do know that long, high-volume intake over, over period of time, so over extended chronic use, we're actually seeing a downregulation in the receptors for the creatine. So should we cycle on and off creatine? Maybe there is evidence to say that we should, but for a different reason as to why we once thought. Okay? So it's one of those things where observation precedes research. You know? So is creatine bad for us? No, we know that, but we now know that there's probably evidence to suggest that, a, that a, if you're taking 
ridiculous amounts of creatine, so say in surplus of 10 grams per day, which we should be taking sort of three to five is where that window lies. Um, 10 grams, you're going to, you're most likely going to look at down-regulating your, your creatine receptors and maybe a short window of time of washout period will actually help you long-term if the case. Or alternatively, don't be a dick and just reduce your dose. It's got to be, well, you're not going to get me to do that with anything. So <laughs> nice try. <laughs> not, not fucking today, not ever. I guess that must be like probably the single most frustrating topic to feel when you work as you know like in nutrition coaching and nutrition consulting especially for performance is the supplementation side absolutely right because that to me is you know when i get because it's it's frustrating supplementations are frustrating for me on the training side mm. like i'll have someone come to me for, for specific training goals and one of the first questions out of their mouth is supplements well, yeah. And that's everything from creatine to tribulus to frickin' trend and suspension. You're just like, fuck, dude. Like, we haven't even talked reps and sets yet, yeah. man. And we're already, but like, it's probably magnified tenfold, you know, the, the, the level of inquisition that you're going to reach when you're, you are talking about nutrition intervention, right? Yeah. I guess we talked creatine works. It's been around for, you know, 20, 30, 40 fucking years. Yeah. What, where are the first, like, what are the no-goes from a nutrition standpoint? Mm -hmm. And then what are the ones that, okay, like, if we're talking sports performance. Yes. What, and I think this is where we can draw the line. Because I think there's nutrition for weight loss. Yes. There's nutrition for fat loss. Yes. And then there's nutrition for performance. And those three things to me, I think, are, and I haven't done any of them well. Um, well, weight gain, I could do pretty well. But those three things are going to have a varied approach when it comes to how we balance in flux uh, nutrition as far as like consuming whole foods and mm -hmm. then how f we start to utilize supplements. What are it like from tr purely sports performance? What are like the go-tos as far as, or at least ones you start for the athletes you work with start recommending more often? Well, straight away, to your just to repeat what we just talked about, creatine is one of them. So whether it be, for example, um, muscle contractile properties, for example, we're seeing sort of between 5 and 15% muscle contractile properties when it comes to creatine. Um, even for, uh, I know something that you talked about recently was repeated sprintability. We're seeing up to a 5% increase in that. Once again, if you're talking about elite athletes, that's important. That 5% is crossing the line first or fourth. You know, so that, that matters as well. Carbohydrates, and I'll, and I'll classify what I mean by that is Carbohydrates in supplementation form. So in, for example, in the form of liquids. So, you know, there is a, each person is individual. So we talked before about the N equals one um, position, but the reality is that once you hit a certain peak of carbohydrate, you have to look at faster carbs. You have to look at quick, um, quick delivery of a carbohydrate system to the person. So supplementation of carbohydrates along with whole food properties or whole food examples are, is the best way forward. So um, I personally like a blend between glucose and fructose, um, but you can get things like uh, heavy molecular weight glucose pro uh, products, for example, uh, uh, cyclic dextrin will probably be the most common one. And the reason why people use that is because it clears the gastric emptying channel very quickly. So it's out of the stomach into the intestinal cavity very quickly. Um, it has a low ability to cause gastrointestinal discomfort as well. That's, that's another one as well. But obviously caffeine is up there as well. Caffeine for sports performance. Now that's a bit of a funny one as well because how much is enough? How much is too much? Right? Oh, I could tell you on the too much side probably. But like 
where is because I know some some places will test you for that yep. as an ergogenic aid past a certain level of you know presence in the bloodstream. That's right. Yeah. So that that's another as well. So you know you have to look at the sport of the individual as well. So does does that particular sport allow caffeine on game day? Does it allow it on? the day in which performance is necessary. Sometimes, as you just said, there's a threshold. They allow a certain amount, but not enough. I know there's local sports here, which are quite popular, you know, rugby league, for example, the players can have 200 milligrams on game day. So they can't benefit from that caffeine. Uh, but look, to answer your question, how much is too much, how much is not enough? And that's where it varies. When the first sort of uh, ideas came out, they were talking about nine milligrams per kilo of body weight. Now, if you run the maths on yourself at 114 kilos, you know, that's a gram, that's a gram of caffeine. You know, that's a ridiculous amount. Done it, don't recommend it. Don't recommend it. I've, I've been there myself and I'm a little bit, a couple of kilos heavier than you, you know, so. <laughs> Wait, what do you, how do you buy that much caffeine to caffeinate you a gram at a time? You know, bulk supplements just to fucking get one dose. I, unfortunately, I worked in supplements for a very long time and they used to send me, uh, let's call them experimental supplements. And, and there were a couple with, you know, 500 plus grams of caffeine. And of course we did what everyone idiot, what every idiot young kid does and we double dosed. Yeah. Um, but look, the, to, to go back to the polar of that is we're now seeing ergogenic benefits as low as three milligrams per kilo of body weight. So to, sh to answer your question, it falls somewhere in the middle. Um, I know personally I get the best result at about four um, only because I'm too scared to go higher for any extended period of time. So, yeah. So with caffeine, we kind of covered a little bit like pre-workout nutrition a little bit peri-workout nutrition. Mm -hmm. I want to move post and further on now into sleep, like yes. pre-pre-bed as like I now sort of switch my focus to kind of those two capstone meals is sure. like we were chatting the other day about like kind of breakfast and, and I think breakfast and before or before bed for me are probably like my most important now. Yeah. Um, I just, I can, I feel like I can kind of train on anything in between as long as I get breakfast and the meal before bed. Now my pre and post workout, not that anything is like necessarily ideal or this is an ideal way to look at it. But for me where I'm at, I feel like if I can get those two right, mm -hmm. I can still sort of move, move the needle forward every day. So post workout and pre bed, what's the thought process for like a, again, a strength athlete, power builder, someone's trying to put on some size, put on some strength. Sure. So we'll, we'll take the, the, the strength athlete as a primary principle. That person's probably only training once a day. So things like, you know, uh, accelerated rehydration or aggressive rehydration principles don't really come into play for that person because typical food and drink principles will come in and you'll just rehydrate and regenerate glycogen over a period of time of the rest of the day. Um, but typically post-workout, once again, it's one of those conversations is, is there an anabolic window present? Probably not. But it's just because you can doesn't mean you should. It's, it's why not get it as fast as possible? Why not maximize that 1% or 2% additional um, growth factor that's happening post-workout? We have to remember that training in its own right is anabolic. Okay? If we can pair that with an additional anabolic response of protein and then mediate any protein breakdown with carbohydrates, why aren't we doing that? Why are we saying, oh, but the science says we don't need to worry about that. Let's get it in as fast as we can and actually help that regeneration happen as fast as we can. So definitely high protein. Um, I personally like uh, easy digestible proteins post-workout. So the common version of that would be something like a whey protein, for example. Uh, I, I mentioned to you the other day about fish. I'm a big fan of fish. 
a simple white fish or a non-fatty fish is going to break down and, and, and process very quickly as well. Excuse me, along with a uh, along with like a simple white rice is a, is a really easy way to do it. Um, I use a lot of bagels, believe it or not, with my athletes. A uh, couple of reasons why. They're low residue, meaning low fiber. They process very, very quickly and they taste good. And you let you we were talking yesterday about rice and like the difference in the types of rice. Because yes. I always find it funny to me when a bodybuilder deems it necessary to tell me that his white rice is jasmine rice. I'm like, all right, fucking Aladdin. Like, I don't give a shit that you're <laughs> oh, one and a half cup of ja- oh, the jasmine rice. Oh, he's the, no basmati for this fucking pleb. Like, he's, he's got the jasmine. And then you actually started to break down. Look, there's, there is actually a difference. And we were talking about, like, sushi rice. I'm like, yes. wait, I can eat sushi? Like, no, idiot. Like, sushi rice. And there's a difference between actual rices. There is. So, so the, the term that I use, and I don't know if this is an official term or not, I use the term packability. So basically what that means is you have to think about the rice and can you pack it? And if you, you mentioned the sushi rice, it packs into sushi rolls. So it goes sticky, it compresses. So that's an, in, that's an indicator of what's called low amylose. Amylose and amylpectin are the type of, uh, type of starches that exist in rice. Um, a, a product with low amylose makes, makes, becomes packable and you can compress it. And that means it's going to digest very quickly. And without getting too technical with it, it's the way the starch molecules are lined up. It can just cleave those starch molecules off very, very easily. Amyl pectin is, is much more tightly packed in a helical bound. So it has to unwind the helical bind first and then cleave it off after the fact. So that would be something along the lines of a Boreo rice uh, in, in risotto, for example. Um, basmati rice has a bit more amyl pectin in it as well. So what it translates to in the practical sense, because let's face it, we're trying to be practical here, is digestibility, how fast it gets into our system, how fast that recovery occurs. So I mentioned before about CrossFit tournaments. I do a lot with CrossFit athletes. I use sushi rice quite a lot with those guys and girls. Just because it's it's still food, but more to the simpler side without being liquid. That's right. right. You don't got to reach for like the branch chain cyclic dextrin that's going to cost you fucking 80 bucks a kilo. You can go and just rather than putting your hand on one container of rice you literally just go to the next container of rice over and yep. one says jasmine one says sushi yep. and bob's your uncle and, and off it, it the cooks the same it's no biggie and it's it's also satiating as well if i if i opted for example a, a handful of jelly beans there's a good there's a good chance that that athlete may if they've got an hour or two prior before their next event they might then reach out for something which i haven't prescribed and that could cause GI discomfort when on the floor. And if you've done anything with, um, with, with sporting athletes or, for example, endurance athletes, you'll know that that can end really badly. You know, it can end up in a, in a toilet upset. You know, there's been, there's been many of, many of videos of, of marathon runners shitting themselves on the course and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I think, too, like understanding the when things are going to go wrong. Like, people always ask me, like, oh, my parents want to drink BCAAs. It's like... Well, if your dad's going to reach for some BCAA powder rather than, like, a Coke, then, like, fucking rock on, man. Like, BCAAs, so take that take that trade all day, right? That's not going to lead down some inevitable diabetes run. Because I think there's a psychological component to nutrition that a lot of people don't take into consideration. Mm. Like, a lot of people want to... A lot of people want to take science that tell you the way the heavens go and tell you how to go to heaven. Yeah. Right? To kind of go with that Galileo sort of Pope analogy of science versus religion but now uh where facts don't matter science is the new religion so we can just fucking make shit up it's like whose line is it anyways 
Yes, I mean, like, you know, BCAs is a, is a fantastic conversation because there's a, there's, a real, there's a real fun conversation, which I believe uh, Jim Stepani started back in the, in the early 2000s. Oh, boy. About, uh, you know, branching amino acids stimulate muscle. muscle Have you seen him lately? No, I haven't. He looks like a tattooed dick. <laughs> he literally looks like if you were to tattoo a penis. Sorry. So I, I, I have no qualms with him, but it does seem, though, from a training standpoint, he's, he's, he's overstepped, and I, I've, I've had to go in a few times and been like, okay, this guy, no, what he's saying about training is wrong. Sure. I can sure. only imagine that what he says about nutrition might maybe miss the boat a few times. Yes, I mean, like he did some, he did some, um, some studies that were funded by, by Cyvation uh, yeah. in, the, in the early 2000s, 2008, 2009, I believe they were, and they, and they suggested that, uh, that branched amino acids stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And they're not lying. It, right. They do. The problem with that is when we talk about the, the peaks and trough of the protein breakdown, we have to have a peak, we have to have a trough. We know that, that leucine is pretty much the only stimulator of MPS and, and of that anabolic response um, in, in the nutrition world, I should say. I should clarify on that. But once you run out of leucine, you require the additional EAAs, the additional essential amino acids, the other six, to then continue that process. So I suppose the, the simple way of saying it is you're sending workers to a job site with no bricks to build the house with. And that's when you're taking BCAAs just like... Yeah. You're, you're, you're dieting down, you got nothing to do, so you fill it up. And, and that could potentially have a detrimental effect on the end goal if that, the goal is to build the house. That's right, because the, the biggest thing is you need to have that, refract, that refract, refractory period of a gap between your protein doses. Okay? So we want to have a peak, then we want to have a slight, prof, uh, a slight trough, sorry, which is mediated by carbohydrates. So we want to try and inhibit that protein breakdown with carbohydrates. And then you know, three to four hours later, we want to have another peak of protein. If we're constantly drinking BCAs through the day in the place of sugar-free lemonade or in the place of other things just because they taste good, like that palatability of the flavor, it's going to not allow that trough period, that refractory period. So you want to make sure that we're getting that peak, that trough, and then that peak again multiple times through the day. And that's kind of speaking cyclical now and moving in kind of into pre-bed nutrition. Sure. Because, I mean, in what little I sort of need to concern myself with hormones and peaks and like cortisol and mm. growth hormone and things like that, that's, to me, it's like, all right, this is sort of like, this will set the stage. I yep. used to think like breakfast would set the stage. Well, I used to think pre-workout really set the stage for the whole thing. Then I got a little bit smarter and then like, all right, it's probably maybe what I eat in the morning. And then I was like a big meat and nuts guy. And then I started to realize, well, it's probably the meal I eat before I go to bed the day before that's mm. probably setting the stage for the next day. And focusing on that, it seemed to like, well, it's, it's worked as much as my nutrition works most of the time. But that idea of like, okay, how can we eat in a way to now in a way where like, look, you know, situational appropriate foods pre-training might not be the steak and potatoes because we're going to need the readily available energy to go train. Yes. Now, situationally um, appropriate foods to set the stage for good sleep, I think is someone is something that a lot of people miss the boat on. Yeah, that's right. So, so once again, with, with regards to the protein, you want to have a, a good solid dose of protein. So personally, I, 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 once again, in an ideal situation, I would like to break up my nighttime meal into two meals. Um, the first would be a, a heavy protein, heavy carb, so high carb, high protein. So once again, uh, look looking at that sort of somewhere between 25 and 40 grams of protein for that meal. Uh, personally, I, I like red meat at nighttime. That's just a personal choice. Um, I generally will pick a 
to use a quote-unquote more easily digestible version of red meat, and that would be in the form of mince um, or ground beef, as you would call it in North America. Thank you. Thank you. I no appreciate worries, that. No, I just want to make a special note. This is the first in-person podcast I've done in like eight months, and you're using the word mince. Like, this is hospitality. <laughs> um, and the reason, you know, I'll, I'll pause on that conversation just now, and then, but to go, to extend on that, I would like to use a, a slightly slower digesting carbohydrate. So it could be, for example, sweet potato. It could be potato. And the reason why is, is, I think I mentioned this yesterday as well, during the night in a period of fasting, let's, t- let's talk about the term breakfast, it literally stands for break fast, we're actually utilizing our liver glycogen stores. So about between 90 and 110 grams of glycogen through the night. So having a slower digesting carbohydrate in our, in our final solid meal of the night is actually going to allow us to help to restore and maintain that liver glycogen through the night as well. Um, to go back onto the mince conversation, the short reason why, why I like mince at nighttime is pretty simple. The whole mechanism behind chewing is to reduce particle size, increase mixture with saliva, and allow more saturation of stomach acids once it hits the stomach. Mince has already done that for you. It's already a smaller particle size. The saturation of stomach acids can already occur, and the chewing is less. Yeah, anytime I can do less and get more, I'm going to take that trade off. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's a, it's in a, it's not pre-digested, but you know what I'm saying when I say it's it's in a pre-chewed right. state. There's a there's a surface area coefficient that lends in your favor. Exactly. When it's down. Exactly. Now, what about like there's there's two like kind of subcategories that I wanted to get into, and with it's artificial sweeteners and micronutrients. Yes. Because I think it's a pretty easy conversation when I sit on the, again, the outside of these arguments and like, you know, um, the sh- sugar debate is sort of reared its head again. Some mm. people are sugar toxic, it's shit, it's poison. Mm. Some people are like, it's just a carb, mm. right? And I think it always comes down to me. It's like, well, what's coming with it? Yes. Right, what's coming with it or, or what potential is lost in coming with it? Like if you're just having, you know, snakes as they were or in, uh, in North America, we would call them, what would we call them? Gummy bears? No. Twizzlers? Just worms? Let's say jelly beans. They're universal. Jelly beans? Jelly yeah. beans. Okay. And Some w- sort of high glucose lily. Right. And yeah. it's like, oh, well, I look at that and go, well, there's not much redeem or like redemptive micronutrition here. So, you know, a carb isn't necessarily a carb. I think that's kind of a silly sentiment to, to relay. As mm. we tell, saw the difference between, you know, amylopectin in sushi rice versus regular rice, Mm. right? So how much or at what point do we start to factor in micronutrition if we're hitting all the high points with our whole foods, Mm -hmm. right? Is that something that we go, okay, given a certain task, we might need more magnesium, given a certain gender, given a certain race, given a certain age. Mm. When do you and how do you start to focus on micronutrition? First is a short answer. First. So I mentioned before about situationally appropriate, situationally inappropriate. Now I'll, 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 pick it, I'll pick a number which I stick to quite a lot. With females, it's between 300 and 350 grams of carbs per day. Over, over somewhere in that range, I'll start to phase away from nutrient-rich, so micronutrient-rich style carbohydrates. So things like, for example, whole grains, potatoes, rices, things like that. And that's when I'll start to introduce the faster, more glucose-centric, lower micronutrient-based carbohydrate sources, i.e. jelly beans, or whatever the case we might be using at the situation. With men, it's typically 400 to 450. Generally, men can just tolerate more food and men can just eat more, to be honest, they're bigger physically. Um, so yeah, the short answer is, is when do I start? It's when do I not start? Right. It's when do I stop? So you mentioned before about when does it come into play with micronutrient focuses, pretty much whenever there's excessive sweating. 
You know, if we talk about the, the average, let's use powerlifting gym, for example, a lot of them aren't air conditioned, you know, so that profuse level of sweating is going to be higher. Um, so we have to look at things like electrolytes, salts, you mentioned magnesium, calcium, things like that. They all come into play. So another one is vitamin D as well. Vitamin D is, I mean, I know, for example, Joe Rogan is currently on a vitamin D bandwagon for COVID, but... <laughs> well, I mean, for me, the vitamin D is an interesting one because to my knowledge, it's the only vitamin that's also a hormone. Uh, it acts like a hormone. It's yeah. not. It's not technically a hormone. It's part of the part of the steroidal fats. Yeah. So it it carries in, in that regard. So, uh, <laughs> so it requires a, a protein binding agent in order for it to be processed. Uh, so it's not necessarily a, a, a hormone per se, but it acts along that same it's line as well. Calciferol or something. Calciferol. Like yeah. Hey, yeah. I'm paying attention. Yeah. So the, the, but that that extends. You got inactive versus active, then you've got the transporter and you've got a whole bunch of stuff that goes on into the biochemical part of it as well. But look, vitamin D, the truth is we can't get, we can't get a tenth of through our nutrition that we can from sunlight. Right. Uh, so the, the short answer is if you don't have a sunbed or a tanning bed or whatever you want to call them, get outside. That's the, that's the short answer. Even uh, there's a current thing now because even in, in athletic populations, you're seeing sort of between 50 and 75% of athletes are deficient in vitamin D. Now, I'm not a blanket guy. I don't want to say everyone should be on 4,000 IU of vitamin D. But to say that, go and get tested if you're concerned. I mean, I, I think personally, you know, vitamin D, it, it looks after immune regulation. It looks after our bone mineral density along with calcium and magnesium as well. It's got benefits for generations. So, for example, um, to help us recover after a lifting session. So, yeah, by all means, go and get yourself tested and if appropriate, take some vitamin D. Now, what is the, like, if you were given an option of like, you know, and a lot of bodybuilders just get this inadvertently through the sport because being tanned is part of the sport. Mm. If you were to be given 5,000 IUs of vitamin D as a supplement or 10 minutes in a, in a bed, which one would you, which one would you pick? Because um, both are artificial in a sense and trying to mimic. Is there but any? But they're not though. Because UVB and UVA will will react with the skin and create through cholesterol, create okay. vitamin D through cholesterol. The, the synthesis is still natural, although okay. the light source is, is synthetic. Interesting. Um, supplementation, pure vitamin D format is technically the same thing. So the body will treat it the same way. It's not, you know, artificial versus artificial. It's, it's oral presentation versus under the skin. Uh, but if you asked me, it would depend where I was. If I was in sunny, sunny Townsville in Queensland, I'd walk outside. Yeah. If I was in Liverpool, England, I would probably take the supplementation. What's going to be like the duration like of contact time? Like, do I, do I need to be olive? If, because I'm pale, am yes. I going to be destined? Like, do I need to be tan? Is it 10 minutes? Is it 20 minutes? The opposite. So you have the ability to synthesize vitamin D faster and more accurately than, um, than a darker person than a person with dark skin. So people with higher melanin levels actually have more difficulty and that comes from evolutionary properties. So we, we, we formed around sort of equatorial Africa. Um, so we, we, we basically developed darker skin tones in order to take what we need and then walk away with the rest. So that's pretty, it, once again, it depends where you are. I mean, if you're, if you're a darker guy in England, you, you absolutely are, are supplementing. That's non-negotiable. If you're a white guy in the south of England, you might get away with being outside. If you're in Queensland, in Australia, 
just go outside. Interesting. I never would have considered like the evolutionary biology factor of like, look, you've evolved clearly to be more efficient to, mm. you know, utilize vitamin D in the yes. sun. That's why your skin is the color it is. Yep. Now you're now in an environment, you know, somewhere in not so sunny England, you should, you are going to be at a detriment because your body almost doesn't fight against, but blocks and again, takes what it needs. And yeah, I mean, you're even, even, it. even the angle of the sun. So if you're, if you're way up in the Northern Hemisphere, just the sheer exposure and angle to the sun relative to where you are in the world yeah. affects how you synthesize vitamin D via the skin. So the further north or even to a certain degree, the further south, further you go south. similar, similar Tasmania, property. Victoria, places like that. Absolutely. Interesting. Mm. Would have never considered that. Yeah. That's yeah. wild times. Because it, it's an insensitive and I have like this, this issue now because we teach for you know corporate gyms and to say like, well, he's going to go ask the grass. Why? Because his last name is Chang. Is I can't, I can't say that. But, you know, there is research to prove that, you know, the Apple, and it's no accident that, you know, the, the podium at the Olympics is going to be the Chinese Olympic weightlifting team, mm. right? The morphology sort of benefits them to that deep moment of hip flexion and internal rotation. But it's hard to have that conversation cross-culturally. Yeah, it is. I mean, you can't say, you know, don't go outside because you're black. I mean, that's not... That's <laughs> no, not, no, no, you definitely can't say that. No, so, I mean, like, yeah, it, but, it, but it's, it's a reality in, in athletic populations. I mean, you know yourself in, in the training environment, what is meant for Karen from the suburbs does not always translate to the athletic population. Um, even things like recovery and things like that and... and you have to be specific to the individual and that's why you know you have to work and uh, I'm, I'm gonna butcher this but basically evidence practice should really be evolved into evidence informed because you need to take what the science says and then apply it to the situation in which you're in yeah and i just love sports for that reason because it's it's a true meritocracy mm. where like if i have i mean i have athletes that are black i have athletes that are white if i tell you know two guys on the same team one guy's you know fucking Irish, his suntan is lobster red, and then he's back to, to pale white, and like tell a black dude two different things on like a certain protocol, mm. why, are, why is he doing something different? It's like, really? <laughs> why? Why? Why is, why, is, you know, why is Trey doing something different than you? That's why. And but, they go, yes, wait, I don't care. But I then look at, the, look at the nurture concept of that as well. I mean, if you, if you are dealing with an athlete who grew up with an overprotective mother who made them lather themselves in, in, in sunscreen all day and that's, that's evolved into their own practices as adults, that's going to inhibit vitamin D synthesis in the skin as well because that blocks vitamin v, v, uh, UVB. So you have to be aware of their own practices and their own lifestyle preferences as well. If they're a pasty redhead with you know pale skin that would glow in the light, you, know, you need to make sure that are they supplementing because they might be concerned about you know melanomas and so on and so forth yeah that's a that's a that's a hard balance to to walk because like what does your history intake look like for me training it's it's kind of easy mm. you know do you have any injuries give me a lifestyle rundown you know i don't have to all you know if they get sick i get worried like all right if they're on like fluoroquinolones or something like that i need mm. to know a little bit of pharmacology like okay we're probably going to lay off the tempo runs you're just taking a pretty aggressive antibiotic for something. Yep. But it seems like everything can affect nutrition. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, actually. Everything, and nutrition affects everything. You yeah. know, it's, it's vice versa. Um, the short answer is, is how deep do I go into the history? It depends on the person. Yeah. It depends on the sport, depends on their activity, their chosen activity. If they're already coming to me at an elite or sub-elite level, 
there's 15 pages of questions. You know, there's, not literally, but there's an extensive questionnaire. If they're a person who's just trying to be better, you know this in the training world, if you get, you know, Jenny Sweatpants up and moving, good chances are she's going to get better. You know, if, if you're starting with such a, such a low base, there's going to be relative improvements from a very low baseline. Yeah, turn over the big rocks first kind yeah. of thing. What, what has been a, some cases of, like, something's gone missed in, and like you, because you start to see it when results don't add up, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and you know when your clients are like, you know, they start their check-in photos when they clearly have some loose change in their pocket, so it gives them like a like a six seven hundred gram head start on the process. Hey, woke up tomorrow and like I'm, I'm fucking half a kilo lighter. Yeah. But some cases where like, you know, whether it's I've seen this with physique athletes, like uh, exposure to like plastics. Like, I've seen some guys in, like, a final stage of a prep going, like, mm -hmm. what the fuck's going on here? And I, as I'm looking at them on, on FaceTime, they're sitting down with the microwaved, you know, meal prep service thing that they steaming fucking hot. It's, Tell me you're not. Eating. Yeah, whole prep, bro. I got a sponsor. Use my promo code. Use my promo code. Fucking 15% off, bro. Come on. Help brother out. And it's like, you've been eating all your meals out of microwave plastic containers for the last 16 weeks. Yeah, and I mean, you pull that exposure and then you start to see the response that you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the plastic one's a funny one. I, I, I generally think if that's the biggest concern, um, you, you're creaming at home. Like, you yeah. you're not, you got nothing to worry about. Um, but yeah, look, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, can you versus should you? Like, can you eat out of plastic? Yeah, should you? Probably not. There's probably some detriment to that as well. But is it something that I... That I drum home with with most people no i don't i mention it hey if you can put it on a plate fantastic but it's it really is it, it's not even one percent it's 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 half a percent of a half a percent you yeah. know so well, that's a quarter of a percent by the way just to do the math, the math thing. Yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't have done it <laughs> so i mean like it's, it's a very very low concern on my part i yeah. mean if you're if you're looking after physique athletes yeah, yeah it's probably it probably amplifies a little bit because you know your body doesn't really want to be sub three percent body fat um but in a performance athlete, it's, it's not a huge concern. I mean, you know, then you got to look at things like composition of sweat and all that sort of stuff as well. For me, it's, it's um, if we're talking about a weight, you know, a weight-restricted athlete, for example, a powerlifter, uh, you know, a weightlifter, a fighter, for example, where they've got to compete at a certain weight, the big one is if they veer off, uh, I've used, I use a, pro a program which which tracks their intake and, and I can, it's on their phone, it's an app. I can look at it from the back end and say, all right, you, you ate X, Y, Z for the day. Um, if I start to notice there are days which clearly the full journal hasn't been completed or there's days missing, it's not always the case, but a lot of the case is that, oh, but I veered off, therefore I didn't want to list it. Well, no, because you still ate it. Like you still over consumed a thousand calories, therefore I still have to make adjustments. If I didn't make those adjustments, I didn't realize that and I just assumed whoever continued to eat their plan and at the end of the week they've gained or lost weight at some ridiculous ratio, I might make adjustments to their plan based on what their results have been, not knowing that they had KFC three times that week. You know, So it's important that we record everything and, and that's part of the first phase that I do with my athletes is just habitual formation. So behavior change is the big one. Yeah, I, I, there's one more thing I want to get into before we actually double back because I want to talk about like it was something you said in the gym that I think is is people don't like to hear it, but anyone who knows it knows it to be the truth, which is like performance isn't health, right? <laughs> and I think 
it's like to anyone who's looking to be the best in the world will likely tell you, you know, the day of the competition or whatever. They're not, I don't want to say they're not, they're obviously at their best because they're looking to perform, but we could pull blood labs. We could pull, we could pull, you know, uh, we could do MRIs of joints and things like that. They're probably not in the best shape for general against like, you know, against a, a standard of like, this is what normal looks like. It's like, well, this is the whole point is we're not trying to show you what normal looks like. We're trying to show you what the best looks like. Yes, that's right. right. So before we get into that, I want to talk about, actually, as I suck this thing back, artificial sweeteners. Ah, uh, yes. And what's the go? Because like, I've operated where it's like, I've Google searched one thing. I saw some guy, you know, Jim Stepani looks like a tattooed dick. I listened to him for two minutes. Like, I can't listen to this guy anymore. So I'm just fucking, I'm just cracking one of these. What is the go with artificial sweeteners? So to be honest, there's, look, there's evidence to suggest that some of them do alter gut microbiome the problem is we don't really know that much about gut microbiome and, and there's a lot of people claiming things about the gut which is exactly that it's a claim they they don't know enough about it and and to be honest you know to to use a phrase that that luke tollock actually said it changes or has the potential to change the gut microbiome but is that change good or bad we don't know um, so i mean that's a really important factor to, to come into play as for artificial insulin spiking and all that sort of garbage, it's exactly that's rubbish. It doesn't do anything to your insulin at all in the slightest. Otherwise, we'd all be, we'd all be falling over going hypo left, right, and center. It doesn't work. Um, I believe there's some crazy, crazy amount. If we look at the really baddie, the one that gets demonized a lot is, is, is aspartame. Um, aspartame at, you know, at doses which are going to cause harm to the individual, it's something ridiculous like 96 cans a day for 10 years. It's something ridiculous like that before you see any change in health. You'd go like hyponutremic just from drinking so much fluid that that's that would exactly likely get right. you before yeah, the accumulation. Exactly right. Now, things like, you know, because this will get marketed, this product here, and they don't sponsor the podcast, so I'm not going to shout them out. Uh, <laughs> but if they're interested, I'll get, give me an email. But like stevia has been something that sort of emerged as a natural yeah and is there any benefit of of picking and choosing your artificial sweeteners i know it's something that a lot of again coming more from like bodybuilding body composition standpoint people will tend towards more artificial sweeteners to get through sort of like a prep mm. um, and not that that's necessarily performance in the normal lens in which we look at performance through but is there is there is there um a picking of poisons, so to speak, where it comes to artificial sweeteners? Well, well firstly, to go back on what you said about stevia, it, it's not official, it's natural, it's, it's, it's a sweetener, right. and it's still caloric. So that's what, that's what a lot of people sort of misrepresent, is these, these artificial sweeteners are generally not non-caloric, they actually have a calorie count to them, because so many of them are sugar alcohols. So erythritol, sorbitol, things like that, they have a calorie count, and they, those calorie counts range from 0.4 calories per gram right up to, you know, 3.8, which considering a carbohydrate's only four, why would you even worry about that, you know? So is there a, is there a preference? Um, not really, as long as they incorporate, they're incorporated into your total daily energy balance, you're yeah. good. And is that a safe, like, is that a safe, like, guide or, like, northern star for most, most people when it comes to nutrition? Like, there, there are so many divided camps. Does it, at the end of the day, just boil down to energy balance? Yes and no. Um, 
yes and yes yes is a short answer for weight loss um for for performance there is a thing called lea so low energy availability or energy availability in general um and that can cause severe detrimental effects things like bone mineral density issues um in women it causes lack of menstruation or what's called amenorrhea uh so and then they used to be known as the female triad you may have recognized that phrasing so that was uh, a a mixture or some combination of low energy availability uh bone mineral density and then amenorrheic so lack of menstruation and then of course that thought process didn't hold up for many years because it it excluded 50% of the population it excluded all males so they've expanded it into this idea of what's called REDS so um reduced energy deficiency in sport or reduced energy deficiency syndrome for those people who aren't is not associated with exercise so that has expanded into things like as before low low bone mineral density but right into psychological concerns like depression mood changes um injury increased injury risk things like that so you've got somebody who it happens a lot in endurance and unfortunately it happens a lot in females um but we're seeing it more and more now with the instagram mentality that you have to be shredded all year round um you're going to see changes in that so energy availability is pretty much exercise expenditure what's left over after your baseline is required so it's the energy is available after that fact so it's not total energy balance it's just what's remaining after you perform your exercise so you want to see the safety rank is about 40 calories per kilo for males and about 45 calories per kilo for females of remaining energy after that fact and then if you start to fall below that that's where you know you may start to see things come on about 30 calories but sub 30 calories you you're in detriment like you're you're in a bad way and this will change sort of that that energy balance thermogenesis way we look at losing weight cuz you know the thing with me that always gets me when things get oversimplified is i know that i've had clients that were severely overweight that were severely undereating and not losing weight yeah right so it's a it's a real popular narrative for a lot of like slapstick instagram accounts to be like oh it's you know keto it's just energy in energy out you know mm-hmm. that's why keto works that's why this works that's why this works and it's like yeah maybe but i feel like there's i've always felt like there's something more to it because i've seen and followed and tracked and lived to a certain degree like look i'm eating at a severe deficit yeah and i'm not losing because the deficit of energy availability is too great well your body will will preference things i mean it it sets it up as a task so to to expand on a, on a larger range you can be weight stable and still be low ea so low energy availability your body cuz weight stability comes from total balance it was energy where energy availability only comes from energy expenditure by exercise or exercise energy expenditure so it's important to make that differentiation you have and it's a bit of a hard thing to get your head around but you can be in a heavy deficit and still be weight stable not to mention that as you lose weight you got to remember there's a down regulation of all enzyme processes and things like and regulators that happen in the body as well um you know there's a few things which we know to be true which the research doesn't support and that is things like your body's a happy place or set point as they call it commonly your body will find its way back up to a certain weight you know after a period of dieting that's <laughs> the the science is support this but we've all seen it there's a there's a, a thought process that you have certain enzyme and certain enzymes and certain processes which support you at a set weight now in order to down regulate that it takes a period of time in order to do so and then you have to remain at a certain lower point for those enzymes themselves to down regulate and that's commonly called metabolic adaptation okay 
but that's not permanent. You can, you can reverse that. Right. And that's what always gets me and why I find performance nutrition so fascinating is, and you kind of touched on it earlier is, you know, in weight class controlled sports mm. where, you know, you want to train at a certain weight that's heavier than your actual day on the scale. Mm. And then you want to get back to that weight after you step on the scale. So UFC is a classic example of this where, you know, fighters will routinely go through camps depending on body weight, eight to 10 to 12 kilos heavier than when they'll step on a scale. Mm. Like you watch UFC fight and be like, these guys are meant to be 70 kilos. This guy's fucking 240 pounds. Don't tell yeah. me he's 70 kilos. Like, look, yesterday when he stripped down to nothing, he was 73 kilos on death's door. And now all of a sudden he's fed back up. Like, well, let's, let's ask yourself, what's your biggest reduction prior to a conference? <laughs> uh, so I cut down 26 pounds in four days. Uh, so 26 pounds is, what, 10, 11, 12 kilos? Yeah, approximately. Um, in four days and then put it all back on in a day without an IV drip. So that was all just food, water. Yeah. Like what a, methods did you use? Crash diet. Crash diet. Crash diet. No, like restrict water intake. Like think of the worst possible way you could lose weight other than putting your fucking fingers down your throat. Yeah. And that was it. So is that a 24 hour weigh in? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you're talking about weight restriction, there's a few ways to do it. So, there's ways through low, res low residue dieting, for example. So coming into the week of the, of the tournament or the show or whatever the case may be, you, you can start to reduce things like fiber and that will, that will actually start to clear out the stored fiber or the, you know, the packed fiber that, that exists in your gut pretty much at, at all times. And that can be, depending on how big the person is, can be between one and three and a half, four kilos. So you don't have to worry too much about that. So that depends on how close the individual is to their made weight. Um, another, another option, which is unfortunately done a lot in fights, is, is water cutting. You have to then look at what is the rehydration period after that fact as well. So um, ollie lifting, so Olympic lifting, they often have a two-hour weigh-in. Um, I know you've done pro-raw, two-hour weigh-in, whereas most regional, state, national shows allow for a 24-hour weigh-in. The aggression required to rehydrate for 24 hours is substantially less than that of two hours. So, and why that's important is if you've got an athlete that has been a bit lackluster with their dieting performance and they require not only uh, rehydration prior to the, to the event, but also resynthesis of glycogen and restorage of nutrients, you're really, you know, punching a brick wall, to be honest. If you've got 24 hours, you can do it pretty, pretty comfortably. And the thing that I've, I found interesting is rehydration with combat sports. And I, I saw this in, in powerlifting is like, yeah, you can hop on a scale the next day and see that, hey, look at me, I'm, I, I beat the system, I won the game, I'm fucking 13 kilos heavier yeah. just by eating food. But I think the principle of like, look, it's on the scale, but it's not exactly where it came from, no. right? Like when you lose it, it comes, you know, it comes out of muscle, comes out of, you know, comes out of the gut, wherever. Um, I actually had Jason Phillips on the podcast. And he was talking about with combat sports, how hydration can actually come from the brain and yes. like the CSF yes. and how that could be a huge issue in a fight. Getting your cage rattled around with like a kind of a fish in, a, in an empty fishbowl sort of thing? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's only one path in and out of the brain, isn't there? So you've got to be, got to be aware of that. I mean, cognitive function also declines massively when dehydrated. You're seeing a physical detriment in, in performance as low as 2%, even 1.5 to 2% dehydration levels of total body, body weight. Um, you know, but then you have to expand on that and say, listen, it's not just the individual's dehydration levels, but also the environment which they're in. Once again, if it, it's a power lifter or even an ollie lifter and they're competing in a, in a tin 
shed that's um, with, a, with a large crowd and, it, and it's 33 degrees, well, they can be impaired by up to 12 to 18% um, in that same environment. Whereas if it was 10%, 10, 10 degrees in Canada, I'm talking Celsius, by the way, okay. in, in Canada, you know, you're probably going to find it's more like 5 to 8%. So it's quite substantial change. Well, I think too, at the end of the day, like, yeah, we can talk about performance not being health, but when we start to enter into the conversation around uh, combat sports, like the longevity of your sport is going to be dictated. Like it's one thing to not be, I would say I'm not cognitively functioning when I'm lifting anyways. Like I kind of go cross-eyed and a little bit slow. Like I'm pretty slow. Like I just, you know, I, especially after a weight cut and a recomp, but it's another thing to be cognitively deficient. Like I, I'll use a wrestling example. Cause that was something that I grew up exposed to. Um, our high school wrestling team was like, at a national level very competitive and we had a lot of guys end up going to the olympics for canada and that's not something you want to be slow in right like what are the what are the stakes like you know wrestling boxing is another one like synonymous with like weight cuts and go into the sauna on the spin bike so yeah. you don't want to be slow if the consequence of that like yeah i missed a lift sure that sucks and like, there are more meets but you know if we look at like now like chronic traumatic encephalopathy you know if you just looked at um you know, Muhammad Ali towards the end of his life. And it's just like, holy shit, man. Like you think, you know, what's in it for Mike Tyson? What's in it for Floyd Mayweather is a bit of a different fighter, but like what's coming down the pipe? Like there's some serious, serious, serious ramifications to mm. you know, getting it wrong. Yeah, there is. And, and I suppose to, to extend on, on the, the idea behind uh, older fighters, obviously, you know, we're seeing the, the physical form currently of, of Evander Holyfield, who wants to come back as well. Mike Tyson lo looks amazing for he's 52 years of age, whatever the case may be, looks quite Im impressive physically. But the typical boxer, you've got to understand that years and years and years of long-term deficit dieting, years and years and years of weight cutting and extreme weight cutting, that has a long-term effect on their body, on their, on their, their metabolic rate, on their metabolic um, uh, output and input as well. So all of these factors come into play. You'll find that those people have 10, 15 years of, of detriment behind them when they finally retire, their activity level also plummets as well, and they still eat like they did. So you're seeing a lot of long-term health health um, health outcomes. For example, uh, you know, increased injury, osteoporosis in, in male fighters, uh, whereas typically during their days of fight, we mentioned this the other day as well, because you got that axial loading from running on, on the road. Quite often, you don't see low, low bone mineral density in fighters, whereas in say a cyclist who's dieting quite hard to ride the Tour de France because there's no axial loading on the on the bike, you'll see bone mineral density issues so that all comes back to haunt them after they retire so that's a really important thing to factor as well but in a current fighter situation you've got things to think about most fights are weighed in the day before if you're part of the undercard it can be you know 18 hours if you're a, a main show that often happen quite late at night it can be 24 can be 30 hours in some cases you know so it's important to understand that with the right principles and practices in place you utilize for example you know high osmolatic um high high um, osmolarity based fluids to try and rehydrate you faster and then you can start to introduce faster carbohydrates to restore that glycogen stores in order to make the weight so it's important to understand whenever we change the composition of the fluid we're trying to do to rehydrate, that changes the gastric emptying rate and changes the rehydration process as well. Right, because I think a lot of people miss that like electrolyte balance thing, yes. right? And that's an issue you run into. Someone goes on a drip or the first thing they do is start smashing Pedialyte with a ton of sugar in it. It's yep. like, oh man, like there's, not, there's nothing... 
there's there's nothing there to kind of I don't know, would bind be the right way like you're not trying to well it comes back to a few things so once again we talked about palatability before that's a big factor with rehydration as well people forget that if I gave you a a, a fluid of some type that had you know uh, sort of 50 millimoles of sodium in it, you're going to know about that. It's going to taste like seawater, more or less. Anything higher than that, we know that 50 is probably going to be the ideal one. Most sports drinks are around that 25 mark, 25 to 30. And the reason why that is, because they can add a sweetener to it and it's still palatable, still tastes okay. So you have to get buy-in from the athlete. So you have to do it at a reasonable level, which means you can't just do it in one big gulp. We also know that the more fluid you put into a gut that's been depleted over a period of time, the faster it clears. And we actually get a lesser rehydration because of the urine output that's responded to that because it crashes vasopressin. So we need vasopressin rises from reduced osmolarity, that's going to help to actually pump the urine from, urine from the kidneys back into the system. If we crash that too fast, what happens? We just piss it all out. We need to make sure we're retaining some of it. So a slow, more methodical uh, rehydration process is in play. We need to make sure we've got some sodium, some salt in there. So we, both, we know that sodium and chlorate are both um, osmo, um, osmotically active. We need to make that, make that occur as well. And then on top of that, you make sure that there's some carbohydrates in there. But if you've only got two hours to play with, forget the carbs. It's salt and it's water. It can taste like shit. Guess what? You're drinking it. Yeah. What, so in the 24-hour realms, I know like there are a handful of guys and girls that listen to this that uh, you know do compete in powerlifting meets that are often 24 hours. Mm. How do you do the balance of just okay? We can, I don't want to say throw aside macro and micro, but just states like solid and liquid. What do you go to first? How do you go with like, all right, here's solid food, here's liquid. How do we, in given a 24-hour window, albeit a little bit more generous than like, you know, the two-hour window, mm. how do you start to balance, okay, just this, like, do you eat first thing? Do you drink first thing? What would you recommend on that front? Personally, um, I, I do them together. So Correct. I would have the athlete with a meal at the weigh-in, literally like as he or she gets off the scales, someone hands her a meal you know, and make sure you're doing it along. And the reason why it is because we know that a delayed rehydration process over several hours is going to be beneficial to the actual hydration rate of the individual. Pairing that with carbohydrates and a protein is going to further benefit that because it slows gastric emptying, it slows that rate of, of, of rehydration and, and keeps vasopressin high and it comes down nice and gradually as well. You also add salt to that as well. So you don't have to drink salt if you don't want to. If you've got, a, if you've got 24 hours, you can have your salt on a meal. It doesn't make a difference. Yeah. So you do do that over time and then once again you're choosing those faster carbs because you've only you know while we do know that in most cases glycogen synthesis occurs in 24 hours there are times where it's going to take 36 um, there is evidence to suggest that women take slightly longer than men so you want to make sure you are choosing quite quick carbohydrates so like before before uh, the sushi rice um, I, I do favor bagels. I love them because they're easy and they come back to the person. They're handheld. And while the person is weighing in, you know, for example, it could be a different weight category performing on the day in which you weigh in for tomorrow's event. You might want to stick around and watch it. Well, if you've got to find a microwave or something like that to eat rice, why not just do it handheld? Yeah, that, that kind of practicality, I think, resonates with a lot of people. I, d I think a lot when, and just speaking from my own personal experience, People don't understand that you can actually use food as a means to rehydrate. Yes. And I think when, because I've done both. Yes. I've done like the Pedialyte. <laughs> I remember when I'd cut for Pro Raw. Fuck, I went out to, uh, so, you know, so on Instagram, his handle is uh, the huge Asian guy. Yeah, yeah. So Andy yeah. Wong. Yeah. <laughs> so we waited and he was, 
I was competing at 242. He was competing at uh, 275 or 308. It's fucking massive. And we go to Black Bear Diner, which nothing says like you're at a diner in California, like you're at Black Bear. So before I went there, I like did the whole Pedialyte thing, got off the scale, and we we're going to eat after weigh-ins. So I like just drank, I don't know, maybe um, a liter. So what's that? Like a, a quarter of a gallon, I think, of, of fluid. And for the Americans, and I was kind of sitting there like, oh, fuck, like, I don't, I don't feel that good. And like the gastric emptying rate was me pulling over. So we, we ate breakfast. I tried to keep up with him. I'm just sloshing around the stomach. It's been empty for like four days. And I was literally about to pull on to the, it would have been, what, fuck, the 880 South. And there was a, star, a Starbucks parking lot. And I just fucking pulled the truck across four lanes. Didn't even make it into the parking lot. Enough to get out of traffic. Jumped out and threw up on my shoes. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, it'd be interesting to see that the, the ratio, if we, if we did the, the solution ratio of that. So, obviously, you would have had fluids then as well. You've probably cracked well and truly over that 10% mark. And that's going to cause some GI discomfort. Whether there's physical exertion or not, you're going to find that you're going to... It's going to react well because you've got to remember that carbohydrates have a limitation how fast they can pass through the, through the intestinal cavity as well. So, you know, we're looking at if we go really simply, glucose 1, 1.1, 1.2, fructose 0.65. If you go in too hard, too fast, it's going to go, I'm not having to borrow this and it's going to come out the wrong way. So, you know, that's another factor as well. But just to go on what you just said, because you were traveling for that show, you have to remember that part of my job as a performance nutritionist is to also know what's going to be in the area for the athlete to go to as well. Me choosing some exotic grain like, uh, like you know, Aramath or something like that when there's no organic, you know, fluffy shops around the place, how are they going to get access to that grain? So you need to make sure that the food you choose is easily accessible. And once again, that's why, you know, you mentioned pancakes. Pancakes are a great option as well because they're super quick, they're super easy to consume and, um, you know, the, the rice is simple. Any, any store will, will sell rice. Any store will sell bagels. Um, if, you, if you're in North America, it's a staple as part of your, your westernized diet. So those things are really important factors as well. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to me because I love when I talk about training. Like I love, a, I love a sophisticated approach. Mm. I always tell the story about like the Apple iPhone, like the, the guy, the patient I had, and anyone who's listening has probably heard it. And you've probably heard this before. Like the guy that designs the billboards for the iPhone. Right? It's a fucking black phone on a white billboard. It's the easiest thing ever. Like the guy used to be a patient of mine. And so I used to make fun of him and be like, hey, check it out. And I put my phone up on, a, on the white wall behind me. Like, huh? Huh? Right? Yeah, this is good to go, right? He's like, you're a fucking moron. <laughs> and he shows me iteration after iteration after iteration. And the mm. hardest thing to do from a design standpoint is to make something simple. Yes. Right? And I think from a training perspective, when I look at a program, and you can kind of see the sophistication under the hood. You can see sort of like all the different moves as far as like exercise order and tempo and duration and how sort of the micro on the day fits into the meso of the block and the meso fits mm -hmm. kind of nicely into the, the macro of the driving intent of the program. And you can see different periodization models for current programming, all these lifts. And, but at the end of the day, your, your client sees is just reps and sets. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And nutrition is exactly the same. So you have to understand, like I said before, the history of the individual, what, what they've been through, what they're going through, what their chosen activity is, is the big one. If, if, you, if you choose certain foods with, for example, endurance athletes, um, you're going to get some sort of discomfort. It's not always going to be at the back end. It's always, it might be at the top end as well. They might end up sort of in the, in the gutter you know, vomiting their, their, their backside up. So, I mean, that's things to consider as well. Um, as before, I do a lot with CrossFit. You have to make sure that their food is fast and quick, yet through the week, 
make sure it's, it's constant and you know they often train twice a day in fact the sport if you're any good at it it dictates you train twice a day so you have to make sure that the first half of the day is all simple and then it folds itself into more complex carbohydrates and higher starches in the afternoon and after that second wave so what they call secondaries or seconds is when they do most of their power orientated movements you have to try and select that because they've depleted glycogen in the morning in their wad or their EMOM or whatever they're doing and then later in the day when they come back to their strength focus they have to make sure that they're actually restored for that strength if Charles Poliquin was here to see CrossFit programming he'd be well he's probably spinning in his grave because the Poliquin <laughs> model was you train twice a day you do your heavy shit in the morning and, mm. your, and your metabolic work at night mm. but it, it's always interesting to me when anyone claims to be a sports anything yep. the first thing I do is how big are their arms it's the first thing I do because there's a lot of sports chiropractors out there. Love a good sports chiropractor. Like, what's your sport? Fucking beer pong? Get out! Like, get out of my face with this nonsense. So, like, sports nutritionist would be one where it's like you kind of have to walk the walk and talk the talk. And then you know, training in your shadow for this the whole week and kind of being like the. I feel like the kid in the Mr. Incredible in the Incredibles movie. Whenever I'm with you, like we're like we're in the car with like Jay and Kayla the other day, and it's just like this is. This is, I feel like he's going to come get me out of my car seat. Like, he's just going to come around the car and pick me up. So I think it's huge to have, like, a background in sport to have that empathy, not only from, like, you know, scientific standpoint of, like, all right, this is the physical demands of the sport you're trying to do, but from, like, almost like a, a lifestyle empathy of, like, look, just get a fucking bagel, mm. right? Like, it doesn't have to be, I don't, you said some Amara something carb. I don't even know what that is. But the fact that it's like, yeah, bagel, and here's, you know, 21 reasons why it's a mm. bagel, right? Mm. Yeah, it's easy being number one, and that's the only thing you need to worry about. But being able to, like, again, look under the hood and sort of see the, the iterative, sophisticated process that led you to such a simple conclusion, right? Because I think you could put something simple next to something sophisticated, and if something sophisticated is really good, you don't know the difference. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's, it, it, so, so I would reference that as uh, I call it validation of decision. You have to have a, you have to make a decision, but why did you make that decision? You have to make sure that you understand the background, you know, the biochemical aspect of it. So, you know, yeah, like you said, uh, there's a bagel. Client goes fantastic. I get a bagel, and and I often get athletes who share on their Instagram, you know, yeah, this is awesome. I get a bagel and eggs or something like that for breakfast. But yeah, and they make it present very well for the photograph, but. Why are they getting those things? They're getting those things because of all these other reasons that I've just stated. You know, so that's the reason why. It's validation of decision. I dig it, man. Because it's, it's, it's how, when I listen, because I don't understand, I, I get some of the stuff and I kind of play dumb in the nutrition realm because I'm nowhere near like even being able to touch your level of knowledge. But I can see the way you talk about it. I'm like, oh, this is how people feel when I talk about <laughs> training. But you could, at the end of the day, you can sum it to that point. Like, okay, that was 20 minutes on amylopectin and, you know, poly, oligo, whatever, helical, chopping and cleaving. But the takeaway was rice, jasmine, rice, no, sushi, rice, sushi, rice. Okay, fuck it. Got it. Sushi, rice. And if someone asked me, I can just say, because Phil said so. Yeah. And then they can go to you and, like you said, having that validation where a lot of people, their validation is just because the guy I'm paying said so. Mm. And that's all they got. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the thing, like, as, as much as, you know, th there's something to be said about simple meal plans as well, you know, keeping things for an athlete that requires it, you know, the whole KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. Sometimes, I w I'm a big believer in education first, you know, you have to, rather than an athlete saying to their friend or their mum or their dad who's trying to convince them to come and have a slice of cake, 
I want them to say, no, I'm, on, I'm taking this because of these reasons. You don't have to go right into the, the nitty-gritty of it, but to give them some understanding about why that food's been chosen. And you know, the, motiv the motivation of the athlete has to sort of come first. What, what, are their out what are their outcomes? What are their goals? And where does nutrition fit? You know, the, a long-term saying of mine is, I want my athletes to want to work with me, not feel like they need to work with me. Right, and I think that's what separates like coaching from just the science, mm. right? It's, it's that ability to create buy-in and in dealing with athletes. Now, in the 21st century, like you gotta, you gotta go into that level of detail, I find. Mm. I find it's rare now to find a high-performing athlete who isn't sort of high-achieving in, in all the other things they kind of get into. Mm. So like the question of why and the curiosity of most of the athletes that I come across, I would say all the athletes I come across now, especially in the sports realm, like you're gonna have to back your shit up. And if you can get that, you can get that buy-in. And that buy-in comes twofold where, you know, you can educate them on complex topics, but if, you know, they don't necessarily get it, you can kind of just bring it surface level with, like, bagel. But we all understand bagels, right? To bread with a hole in it, good. Bagel, eat bagel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, so one of the things that I, I get quite upset about is the it depends conversation. You know, like, for example, it depends. Okay, what does it depend on? Right. You have to have a you have to have a conversation or, or, or an argument to back up your decision. Yeah. Back up what, what's the validation behind it depends. You have to know your know your shit, and to put it bluntly, and that's where I think it does get lost a lot. You know, people say, oh, you know, oh, well, that that it depends. Okay, I need. Can you clarify on that? You know, I, so. To me, it reminds me whenever I hear it depends, I immediately like go to Ron Burgundy working out in his office. He's like, well, you know, the upper door smith connects to the ubulus. It's all very complicated, and like that's what I feel. People like smoke, like intellectually try and smoke bomb the conversation. Like, mm. pew, I'm out because they just they don't know on they don't know even the extent of the variability in which the outcome could even depend on. Let's yes. just start there. Yes. Right? Let's not even like if you can list me, okay, it depends on what. Well, you know, uh, it depends on training age, it depends on uh, current volume, it depends on work capacity, it depends on resting heart rate, it depends on s sleep, it depends on uh, you know, the neurotransmitter prep whatever. It's like, okay, even that, even if you don't know necessarily how to chase down all those variables the mm. fact you even know that those are the variables that it would depend on mm. shows me some indication that you're at least invested in this. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a great one to expand on as well. You mentioned training age. Training age, how about biological age? All of those things come into play when you're talking about uh, like protein quantity and, and nutrition as a whole. You know, we know that, I mentioned this at the start, we know that resistance training as a whole is, is, is anabolic. We know that. We know that then protein comes up and tops up that level of anabolism. But we also know that over a period of time, and I believe this came out of Stu Phillips's lab, that our body actually becomes more sensitive to, to protein over, over a stimulus period. So for example, if we go many years of taking bolus doses of protein, we actually don't need as much as we did when we first started. Okay, so that's a really thing, thing to, important about, um, to think about as well. But then as our training age and therefore our biological age goes up, our requirement for protein also goes up. So you need to understand that as well. And all of these factors come into play.
you know, I, I, I read a study of the day that, that classified 25 as middle-aged. I mean, oh. what a ridiculous conversation to have, you know, but we know that over, say, 40, and I like to personally bring that down to, say, 35, 40 years of age, the requirement for protein because our ability to, um, to receive the protein from a biological um, availability level goes down. So we need to actually give a higher dose. So people of that age can probably benefit from, say, up to 40 grams, whereas as I mentioned this before, most of the research suggests that 25 grams for a younger person is adequate. But we talked about this, and this goes back to the evidence-based versus evidence-informed. Those studies, 75, 80 kilo people, I mean, you yourself, 114 kilos roughly? Yeah, yeah give or take. Yeah, give or Maybe take. a little heavier after training with you for the week. Sure, sure, you know. Um, so does that stand for me as well? Does that stand for you? Like, <laughs> well, it's half of you. That's, that's, well, that's up to noon for you. That's, that's 75 exactly right. kilos. Yeah. So now we got another 75. So is there, is there suggest, and, and they just don't grab guys like yourself and, and, and me to, to do these studies. They, they choose collegiate-aged individuals. You know, what, what the fuck does that mean? Right. You know, like it think, means the kids that were willing to do it for, you know. 50 bucks. Right. For and a pizza voucher. And that's, uh, I mean, we could probably spend another three hours just on talking about, like, what's wrong with academia as a whole, right? Mm. Like, you know, there's a scarcity of resource and that you almost have to become empathetic. And it's like, look, you know, you, you mentioned Stu Phillips. Uh, Stu Phillips is such a good researcher on protein metabolism that I know Stu Phillips researches protein metabolism. He like, does. that's how good he is. Like, yeah. if you don't, you know, his Twitter, that would be something that if you want to be informed, he'd be a lab that I think turns out good work. But you're fighting for scarce resources, man. Like, mm. all of this stuff in the stage is usually running off grant money. Right, NIH grant money, school funding, and it's, you know, you need to be turning out. Uh, it, it's, you know, in a, in a place where resources are scarce, people start doing some shady shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, gold medals are scarce. That's why, you know, Nancy Kerrigan and the lead pipe, that's why that story exists. And research is no different. Like, they're just like, I always make the comparison of, like, Shred's supplement company that was going out Photoshopping, you know, the, the athletes. It's like, oh, my God, can you believe it? It's like, yeah, I absolutely can fucking believe someone would do something as easy as Photoshop a photo to make more money, which is a scarce resource in the supplement company or the yeah. supplement industry, right? That same person would happily exist in academia to, you know, not Photoshop, but begin to massage the research and the discussion and the outcomes of a particular topic that if it would benefit them to get more grant money and more of these resources like moving into the future yeah that's right and like what what i suppose to expand on that is the is the assessment and actually the the how people perceive the research they take it as a gospel you got to understand is that that research come out and and is right and correct for that environment and that situation it's not applicable to the real world in a lot of cases you've got people doing these you know vo2 max tests in a laboratory environment that's 22 degrees you haven't got them in North Queensland in 35 degree weather in January. It doesn't work that way. So you have to understand that, that these these evaluations and the sort of these, how people sort of synthesize this information is very varied, but you get these PubMed warriors who go, have you seen this document? Have you seen this document? Have you seen this document? Yeah, great. And that answered the question for that exact purpose. Yeah, and it's like, all that tells me is like, A, you know how to read, and B, you might have some low form of Asperger's. If you can recall all these, well, so-and-so at all. Like, I remember being, shit, I must have been older than, maybe as 19, no, I would have been older, maybe 19 or 20. I remember being in the uh, Canadian Olympic training facility. I was interning under Chris Dawson, and we were doing lactate threshold testing for nice. the Alpine Olympic team. And it's like, these guys are fucking thoroughbreds. Like, yeah. none of them spoke a word of English, all from some fuck-off, bum town, middle-of-nowhere, northern Quebec. But, like, 
just had, had a gear that at that point in my career I had never seen. Like we're talking, uh, what did we do it on? We did it on like a, a treadmill, a very broad treadmill that had foot, like basically they were on roller blades that were skis. Was right. there a belt attached to the back of it as well, and it pulls and it measures their it measures their force rate? No, we were just tracking. We were just pricking for blood, and we were uh. just testing blood lactate. But it it very and even at the age of whatever I was, eighteen or nineteen, it dawned on me that wait a minute, as you said, I'm I'm here in shorts and t-shirt and I'm sweating and yeah. I'm not even on the treadmill. I'm just poking the guy in the finger every whatever five minutes, whatever the protocol was. How is this going to hold up? At altitude, mind you, because this motherfucker is going to Norway for worlds in six months, mm. let alone at altitude in Norway in December, it's going to be, oh, I don't know, negative 20. And it's like, and the guys that usually tested the best for like, you know, being able to either phenotypically low threshold athletes that were just able to buffer that, that um, hydrogen ion really quickly, or they were guys that were just pain. Like you, I would look at some readings. And I would be like, you must be in so much pain, like upward oh, north of like 20, 23, um, what would have been the milligrams per deciliter, I think would have been the one if we were doing it in Canada. Yeah, or, deciliter, yeah. 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 And I'm looking at this going like, I'd be throwing up at like 17 or 18 and this kid's cranking at 24. But it, it was almost like, what are we doing? We're doing science for the sake of science. We're doing science for other scientists. Like, we're not doing science for this guy. We're just like, this. what a guinea pig. What a very capable guinea pig this kid was. But so, so to go into, your more, into more your world about, about the evaluation and, and sort of the analysis of, of, of research data, um, let's look at something, for example, like you mentioned this uh, to me the other day, training specificity. So most of the papers, and that's sort of come back into, into favor of late with a lot of papers being released on the specificity of, of, of particular training styles and modalities. But a lot of those studies didn't incorporate correct nutritional practices. So yeah, does, should, a, should a weightlifter run? Probably not. But does that mediate gains if nutrition intervention is, is created? You know, that's, that's something that, that gets me who say, oh, you shouldn't do X, Y, Z things. Well, hang on a minute. There was no nutritional practices put in place to mediate any loss of muscle. So where does that fall into play? You know, things like that. So you've got to, you've got to be able to look at these papers and go, all right, where were the weaknesses? Where were the things that could be altered and changed that may give a separate outcome? You know, it's not just about environments, it's about the other implications that occur. Right, and that's the thing too. In, and that's why professional sports and high performance is, is such, I don't want to say it's necessarily a hard thing, it's a hard thing to find from one person. Mm. Like, and in most professional teams, and a lot of people are trying to emulate like, you know, world-class performance, but they just have one coach. It's like, you know, bodybuilding, powerlifting, that's not terribly, terribly difficult as far as like, look, you need to get a certain weight, here are the foods. But if you're really trying to push the envelope, like I, I'll get a lot of guys, AAA baseball in America, mm -hmm. that come to me. It's like, look, we can talk, we can talk shoulders, we can talk pelvis, we can talk rib cage, we can talk mechanics, we can talk training. But like, if you want to make it to the bigs, look, the, the guys you're going to go into a, an open tryout against, or the guy you're going to come up and camp against, he's got a he's got a nutritionist, or he's got a trainer. LeBron James spends one point five million dollars a year just on his on his trainer, on his nutrition, on his recovery, right? Like, 
decentralizing outside of one person because there's too much to know. And I think that's a problem with research is research has to be so reproducible that you actually take away the value proposition, right? So you actually remove the value proposition where it's like, if you are trying to push the boundaries of performance, it's like, yeah, you might want to have someone who knows training, look at your training. You yeah. might want someone who knows nutrition to look at your nutrition and you'll never find a study where they're going to concurrently evaluate objective outcomes with standardizing and a, a meaningful approach to both of these two facets of your performance. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, I've, I've got even in a, in a practical sort of real world example, I, I've got endurance athletes I look after, but I'll tell you right now, I've got my opinions on their training. I don't comment on it. It's not my place to comment. I, I might very occasionally say, listen, hey, just ask your coach about X, but I don't make a comment because it's not my world. It's not my place. I don't run. Clearly, I don't run. Um, I definitely don't do marathons and triathlons, that's for sure. But I know nutrition. I know, how to, I know how to apply it. But what I'm getting at is that you have to stay in your lane. That's a big, big factor. But yes, it would be great to get an entire team together, but that comes back to funding, doesn't it? So either whether it be in real world, you mentioned 1.5 million from LeBron James, that's not accessible to you know, most professional athletes, let alone, you know, the people trying to give it a red hot crack on the weekend. But the sad part is it's not the skill set of people staying in their lane is so sparse that it's not even accessible to professional athletes. Like it's professional, like in season, they'll have like sports nutritionists. Let me tell you how the sports nutritionist got their job ready. He's dating the daughter of the owner of the team. That is how the performance nutritionist for 95%, some kid, I guarantee you this is what it is. Some kids going through a nutrition undergrad program realizes that the owner of the whatever, the 49ers, his daughter goes to the same school. Doesn't, she could be crawled out from under bridge. He doesn't care. He's playing the Trojan horse game and he's, oh, oh, yeah, no, yeah, fine. Go ahead, go ahead, kid. Like, go. that's how they get their job. It's, it's fucking nepotism. One of my quarterbacks in the NFL was on 1,300 calories. I was like, Dave, just give me a three-day recall. And this is just me, like, just putting a finger on the pulse of, yeah. like, look, we've been, we are training and this is one of the cases of, like, you know, we've, we've been controlling the majority of our variables. He's been in the league now for four or five years. I worked with him back when he was in college and, you know, he, he had his shit together, but like, he's just not putting on weight like he should be. He's kind of on the smaller end for being a guy that looks down the barrel of, you know, these 280 pound dudes running four or five And it's like, okay, well, let's put some off, put some size on him in the off season. I had him do a three day recall of 1300 calories. I'm like, yeah. I'll put I'll put a bikini athlete on stage on more calories than that dude. Yeah, and, and that's the and that's the implication, isn't it? So that's where where nutrition and the principles of nutrition, the practices of nutrition, cross over into your world, the strength and conditioning, the 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 rehab, the recovery. If you haven't got the the seemingly menial conversation around nutrition in play to correct levels. You, you risk injury, you risk performance, you risk tears, you risk inability to perform on the field or even in the gym for that matter. So this is where investment needs to come into play. And, and I suppose who's done it right is EPL. So the English Premier League uh, soccer or football, te football teams, whichever, you, whichever word you want to use, they have legitimate performance nutritionists. And I want to clarify, not dietitians, they have performance nutritionists, people who specialize in the performance world. So, I, so in Australia, um, unfortunately, nutritionist can be a very, very versatile term. It can mean anyone who wants to sell you gut health you know, right through to someone who actually is qualified and accredited as, a, as myself. But I work with a clinical nutrition, a cl sorry, a clinical dietitian who I don't deal with clinical aspects. You know, anything to do with clinical aspects, I, I palm off to her and she palms me her athletes. So th there's, a, there's a, going back to the specificity, there's a specificity of trade that occurs. EPL has that down pat. It's, it's, it's 
honestly, it's upsetting to hear that about the NFL. I mean, I, I wasn't aware of that. I thought I thought you know a multi-billion dollar corporation like that would have it covered. I mean, you mentioned before about the joke. I put a girl on who was 51 kilos on a competitor stage on 1600 calories. Yeah, you know. Well, it's just for me, it's you know again, it comes down to. Athletes, I think, need to start looking at this as an asset, not an expense, mm. right? This is something from a, a business point of view. When I start to look at, you know, the, the hardware and shit that we're, I'm, just, what I'm sitting in front of, this is a couple grand. That this setup's like thirteen hundred. So I'm sitting around just on this table. There's five grand worth of electronics, and not to mention what's going on at the other table. And the vase. And the vase, very nice. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a little feng shui really ties the room together. But it's like that to me is like I can look at that now and be like. That's $5,000 I've spent. Well, now I look at that. And it's funny. We were talking about flying business class the other day. Yes. And I look at it the same way. Like, you know, you're a much larger human than I am. And if you have a job that requires you to kind of be accessible around the clock or constantly be sort of innovating or creating, it's like I can look at a flight where I'm spending 14 plus hours, you know, taking over and bullying someone in their armrests. Or I could look at that and be like, all right, I'm going to spend like a ridiculous and it is a ridiculous amount on that flight if i'm up in business class but guess what that's 14 hours of work can i make five grand can i make eight grand can i make 10 grand while i'm on that is this is this an expense can i make it an asset mm. right it's the same with you know athletes and i think coaches need to get wise on this because now in the post market i got i doubled my rate of clients in covid with professional athletes because they don't care. They know the NFL is going to come back. So mm. it's like, you know, the, the, the gen pop, um, you know, there's, there's a saying that special, 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 specializing is for insects, which I think I, I fucking hate in our field. Because I think if you're really good at it, you need to be really good at one thing, mm. right? Because, you know, to be the jack of all trades, like to be able to go, to go wide and deep cross discipline. And like, they are such vastly different. Like I've done nutrition at a grad school level and you use some words where I go, I think I've heard that before, right? Like I, I've taken advanced nutrition bio, like I've had to take a competency exam at the national level for biochemistry, mm. right? Like I'm oxidative phosphorylation, the literally the only thing I fucking remember. Cause I literally said, if I'm ever in a bind, I'll remember this word and I'm just going to drop it and hope no one asks any other questions. It's like Krebs cycle. Yeah. You know, some oxidative phosphorylation. Yeah. What of it? And that's like literally the only thing I know. Right. So I think people are so, and maybe it's scarce resources in an open market, but like there are a lot of people who are in need of, you know, having having a, a nutrition guy, having a training guy, like the jack of all trades, master of none, I think will be the unemployed coach because they can't go into the level and depth and detail. They can't, as you said, they sort of validate those decisions that they're making with any sort of uh, evidence because they're just trying to cover such a broad net. Yeah, and we're seeing that a lot now with the, the once again, back on the, the power of the current online evidence-based community, um, those who are, living and breathing what PubMed says. So you're seeing this evolution of, you know, essentially bodybuilding slash physique trainers who trained people, people super lean on stage now trying to enter into the performance world. And they're very, very different war games. In fact, even I myself, I've picked up clients because I've happened to be in the right place at the right time. And a performance client has come in to see a trainer and they haven't been there. They didn't show up to the meeting. And I've gone, hey, how can I help? And it's turned out this individual needed a lot more due care than what a physique coach could actually look after. So 
that's happening a lot now and you're seeing these you're seeing these uh these instagram style coaches fuck people up left right and center and you mentioned before about the 1300 calories with your player i would be very interested to see his mood his mentality his mindset his sleep things like that because he would be a candidate to be investigated for reduced energy deficiency yeah and it's incredible like even just turning over the low rocks from like or turning over the big rocks to the low-hanging fruit from a performance perspective like we were shaving off like his depreciation of like when we do repeated sprintability we usually do it on a timer and once we sort of depreciate you know, anywhere between five to 10% of these bouts for sprint ability, like per, per sprint, we kind of call it, right? We don't want to practice bad practice. We're clearly not working in the same energy system anymore. We're getting a little bit slow. We're not practicing moving fast and so we'll cut it. His depreciation, right? I think he went 20, 25, 30, I didn't do the math, but probably 25 to 30% greater training volume the next week. Like, which was means, you know, he, he was doing maybe 10 sprints on, he was doing 10 yard, uh, 10 yard sprints on 60 second resets. Mm. He was then going 15 to 20 sprints on without crossing that five to 10 percent, the five to 10 percent depreciation of his performance. Mm. Just by like, I because it's like, I don't give a fuck what it is, dude. You're the 30 year old male playing in the NFL. You like, just eat more food. Yeah. I don't care. And like you said, like track it just, just so we can get some sort of like new established baseline. But it's, it's amazing to me. And I think as people start to super specialize and get these opportunities, you'll realize that the demand for this is so high because there's not many people doing it well. Yeah, so I've got a very similar story. I have a, a, young, a young lady came to me. She was on between 1,100 and 1,300 calories for multiple years of length of time. Um, we've now worked her up over time. She's an endurance athlete herself. It takes time to build up that, that ability to tolerate carbohydrates at that required level. We're currently at 3,200 calories per day. We need to be at just over 4,000 calories per day given her training load. Um, obviously, she's a world-class athlete. I, I her coach won't reduce her training load. That's that's part of the you know the real world practicality you've got to come up with. But it took four or five months before I was not getting messages. Hey, I, I feel a bit upset in the gut from eating that food, things like that. But she's recently done uh, a sprint event, not her typical distance. Set a new course record um, and smashed the race. And then said, "Oh, that was probably one of her worst races she's ever done." You know, so that conversation where, and by the way, on that note, hasn't gained a kilo. So it's that ability for the individual to access the energy that, that will see the performance improve and improve and improve that they don't see when they think they're working at 100%, but they don't realize there's so much untapped potential at the top end that they just can't get access to because the fuel requirements and the metabolic efficiency isn't there. Yeah, and that's the one thing I like and the, the easy thing to differentiate. Again, like any, anyone who's performance-based and they're in their uh, in their objective is performance based in their outcome, mm. right? So with training, it's the same thing. Like I'm not training any of the guys to be better, you know, powerlifters or mm. Bulgarian split squatters. You're training to be better football players, yes. right? And like to be able to have tangible data of like, look, here's here's a rise in calories of what 100. percent You've done double their calories, and I mm. plan on going higher than that at 4,000, yep. starting from 1,300. But more importantly than that, she's not a professional calorie consumer, right? <laughs> she's not fucking, what's his name? The, the hot dog Kobayashi or whatever the fuck that guy is. Or, Man eats food. Or, yeah, yeah, a buddy that does uh, Joey Chestnut <laughs> prior to San Jose, California. Like, her goal is to win races. And, you know, here she is with a subjective interpretation of a race that was poor, maybe from a technical or execution standpoint. Mm. But clearly, like, 
if we're having a poor subjective feedback, but very strong objective feedback, yep. like there's, there's, that's, that's the applied, that's the coaching side where like I find people that, you know, come down just with the nutritionist thing and don't understand the objective outcome. They kind of let their, yeah, but look, like, look, we're eating 3,200 calories now. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but I'm dead fucking last because I'm a beach whale on a fucking bicycle. That's like, right. this it doesn't do me yeah. any good at all. But it's like, hey, you're running at the same body weight, consuming more calories, and clearly your objective outcome of performance has increased. Yeah, that's right. And, even, and, and the other thing is recovery. If the individual can't, can't recover, what's the point of what you're doing? You know, the, 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 the desire and, you know, when we're talking about, you know, NFL players or, or these sports specific players, they often train multiple times a day, you know, and in enduro, it's, it's two to three, four hours sometimes. They have a training profile called a brick and that's a combination of two of the three events in triathlete, triathlons. So that can be three hours of riding plus a 40 minute run in the morning and then something in the afternoon, the, the caloric demand for that style of training is just astronomical. You, and to go back on what we said at the start, you can't do that with sweet potato. They'd be there all day. They'd be eating kilos of sweet potato. So you have to do it with a fast carb and having that ability to access that and even getting the psychological aspect of the individual to say, listen, you need, you deserve this fuel. That's another barrier you have to fight against as well. Yeah. And that's where the coaching side, I think, becomes so important. That's right. Um, on that note, coaching side, where do people find you as far as like reaching out? I'm going to put all the stuff in the beginning. So when I do the intros, because I know how you are, if I, if I sit here and pump your tires, you'll sit there and be all like, well, I was like, well, fuck <laughs> off. So I'm just going to do it when you're not around. And then you'll just have to listen to it or not listen to it when I put it up. And, but, and I'll put all, all the, um, all the, uh, the, the Instagram handles and all that stuff. But where, if people haven't listened to the intro for whatever reason, or need to hear it again, where do they find you, um, for, you know, coaching services. And I would highly recommend it. So the easiest way is probably by Instagram, to be honest, rather than giving out my personal email address, um, is uh, sport plus. So singular, so sport S P O R T P L U S underscore performance. Uh, and that's my handle Instagram. Okay, easy. And I'll, I'll make sure to put his home address in the show notes. So you can't just, you know, you see a light on, just stroll in, say hi. Uh, but dude, I appreciate your time, man. It's cool that we can be able to sit down after however many years now. So what, three or four years? Yeah, yeah, about four years, yeah. Kind of going back and, and kicking the ball around on social. So it's good to be able to, A, train with you and appreciate the hospitality. It's, you know, no one's jacked my car yet in Townsville. And I have you, I think they saw, they see me at the gym with you and they go, all right, we'll leave the white Mazda with the fucking trash door alone. Uh, but I appreciate the hospitality, man. I appreciate you taking the time to come on and um, we'll hopefully do this again in person sometime soon-ish. No worries. Awesome, man.